welcome to Galaxy Forum. I'm your host, Melissa Kaplan, and we're here to explore the creativity happening in the LCC galaxy, in our classrooms and on campus, and connecting the work of our stars with our community. It really is almost an absurd understatement, I think, to say that we are inundated with information these days. Most of us have our go-to sources that we trust, or at least mostly trust. How do we know when we're being hoodwinked, even by those trusted sources? And how does this play out for the people who report and publish the news, as well as those who teach it and those who learn about it? That's the focus of our conversation today, media literacy. And I am delighted to welcome our three guests to the studio. Jaden Hewitt, an LCC journalism sophomore and a reporter for the LCC Lookout. Welcome. How's it going? Good. Amy Ewald, LCC's information literacy lead library. I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for having me. And Burl Schwartz, a reporter and the publisher of the Lansing City Pulse. Thank you. It's nice to uh, be on this side of the microphone from you. Absolutely. Uh, Burl uh, has long had a radio show, and I've had the pleasure of being a guest on that for on many occasions for different circumstances. So it really is great to have each of you with your different experiences and perspectives uh, that you bring to this subject, uh, because we want to talk about the perspectives of information producers and information consumers and how you and each of your roles help navigate this dense landscape. So Amy, I'd like to start with you first. If you could tell us what is media literacy? What does that mean? Media literacy is a, is a set of skills that we use to help us uh, figure out what we're looking at, uh, to help us discern the information. So it's, it's basically a, just a set of skills that we would use to, to help us evaluate what's in front of us and the information that we're looking at. Can you give me an example of some of those skills? Sure. Uh, asking, uh, one of the most important questions I think to ask these days is to ask who's behind the information? Who, who's posting this? Who's writing this? Who's the publisher behind it or the organization behind it? So if we can get at that information, that can help us a lot to figure out, you know, what's fact, what's fiction, what's, uh, what's misinformation or disinformation. And you're, you're speaking as someone who teaches people how to consume maybe the wrong word, but how to assess, how to take in that information. To, to basically be a good consumer of information. So, Burl, what does it, uh, as a publisher from, from kind of the other side, how does, uh, what does that mean to you, media literacy, and how, do you, how does that play out as, you know, in the newspaper and the decisions you have to make? You know, I think uh, paramount uh, is that credibility is everything. And uh, it, it uh, shocks me uh, how easy it is to get misinformation, uh, but people don't take the time to uh, figure out what are reliable sources. And uh, I, you know, I've taken City Pulse from ground zero. We started it 22 years ago. We had no congratulations. Thank you. That's an incredible ac accomplishment. Thank Earl. you. We had no credibility because no one had ever heard of us. And uh, to a place today where uh, we actually are the biggest 
circulation except for the Sunday Journal. We're bigger than the Journal is during the week. And uh, that suggests to me people have voted that City Pulse is credible because they keep picking us up. And City Pulse... um in case any listeners aren't familiar with, how would you describe City Pulse? Uh, It's a genre known as alternative, which begs the question, I guess, alternative to what? I know. (laughs) You know, once upon a time, we were the alternative to the journal, to Mm -hmm. mainstream. Now we're by sort of by default, we are mainstream because we're the surviving, the, the biggest surviving print publication in the market. And and the City Pulse, certainly known for covering the arts and culture, but also providing uh, news coverage uh, and other types of events um, from the entire community, the greater Lansing area. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's no shortage of material to cover. The shortage is finding staff and space and enough advertising to pay for that space to get all the stories out there. Absolutely. So, Jaden, as as a student in journalism, how have you been learning about media literacy? I think the biggest thing so far, I've had to use good media literacy and, you know, figuring out what a good news source is, is um, definitely typing um, papers in school. Um, As a journalism student, I had to um, not create real stories, but I had to use actual information. So finding a big, credible news source as Burl was saying, um, is important. I think not using a random news source that you find on the internet is the most important thing to me. Um, you don't want to be scrolling down uh, on Google and saying, oh, I can use this because it pertains to what I'm doing. I think you need to really evaluate what you're doing. I think even digging deeper into it, um, seeing who wrote it and whether they have some sort of bias or agenda that they're trying to push. Um, I mean, it's not typical that you see that especially in a large newspaper, but you do want to make sure that you're not um, consuming some bad information, especially with your, you know, putting it in a paper is a little bit different. Um, That's within school. Um, But me now working for the lookout, it's a little bit different. I don't want to put out bad information because I don't want to lead people astray. So let me, let me toss in the, the, that, um, a lot of people who are good sources of information have an agenda. And uh, many, many important stories have come from people who have an agenda. Uh, The Pentagon Papers, for example, you know, that clearly was uh, dictated by somebody who wanted to stop the war. Uh, Many uh, investigative stories come from people who are mad at their boss. They Mm. have an agenda. The challenge is to dig enough on the record to verify information. I have a good friend I started with named Bill Marimo, who won two Pulitzer Prizes and never took anything off the record. He just dug and dug and dug. And it's the key is not what is the agenda, but what can you verify? What's factual? Whether it's the truth, (laughs) often that's a coincidence. But if it's verifiable information, I really don't care why the person is is giving me that information. I care about whether it's accurate. Mm -hmm. Amy, you have some 
techniques that you use to to teach that very very thing. Sure, I was thinking of the idea um, of of click restraint. You mentioned, you know, uh, your Google searches and things like that. We often want to run our Google search and we click on one of the first top things that we see. Uh, but it often the good stuff is buried within your search results. So it's often one, two pages deep. So whether you're doing it with um, Google or with an actual source that you're talking to, that idea of you keep digging, you keep going, uh, you, you go a little bit farther, you look at another source, you you follow that like a breadcrumb trail almost to, to different sources that will lead you different places. So yeah, we call that, that's a, we have a term for that is basically click restraint of, you know, restraining yourself. Don't click on the first thing that you necessarily see. Scan your results. Go into the second page. Um, and, and hopefully then you're, you're going to uncover more information. It's the same idea, too, of, um, you know, there's always a big debate about Wikipedia and things like that. Well, Wikipedia is, is sometimes that might just be your first place. That's the first place that you go. But then you keep going. And you keep going and you find additional sources, you find additional information, you talk to different people, um, and, and then that's how you get to the good stuff. And the debate about Wikipedia is partially because it is um, filled with information from so many different sources. Is that correct? Do I understand right, it correctly? Right, right. And it's the idea that... Uh, Community-created... Community-created content, things like that. Um, but, but you do often see... Most a good Wikipedia article will have sources at the bottom that, again, following that trail. Uh, so you might start there, but keep going. And you've also talked about something called lateral reading. Yeah, lateral reading is, a, is something that you can do when uh, you're not sure really of what you're looking at. You're not sure of the website that you're looking at. You're, it, it belongs to an organization. It's a .org. Uh, many years ago, I've been doing this for about 10 years, and we would say, oh, organizations, you know, good. <laughs> you use .org websites. Uh, but now we realize organizations, they can put any type of information up there for you. So if you're ever looking at something and you're not sure about it, um, get off of what you're looking at. Open up a new tab in your browser or, you know, go to a different place. And then you, this is where you get to use your Google skills, too. <laughs> <laughs> so open up the tab in your browser, look um, and, and run a Google search on the organization that you were just looking at. Find out what others are saying about them. Um, has there been any reporting on that it, that on that organization? Is and I'm picking on organizations right now, but um, you it's could, individuals too. And you could do this with an author if you're if you're not sure who they are, where you know what's behind them, what are their credentials. Um, Google them, find out about them. So the idea of lateral reading is to basically get off of what you're looking at and then kind of do your research about that source or, or that particular page. You know, uh, what you're talking about doing needs to be done to evaluate news organizations as well. What we're seeing today are news organizations funded by secret money. I lost a reporter recently. He's being paid double what I was paying him to go to work for something called Michigander. Who funds Michigander? His guess, George Soros funds Michigander. The employees don't even know who's paying them. They have a motive. Their motive is to win 
the White House in 2024. Stories are meant are targeted at voters who strayed uh, to Trump. This may all be things we some of us agree with politically, but is it news when you can't even determine who's paying for it? Yeah, that's a. I mean, it, it, to me, that used to be public relations, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and and that's what you would expect to 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 see from a, a PR campaign. But it would be clear this is a PR campaign for this platform or this individual or organization or institution. And uh, yeah, it's it's not clear now. And so, which leads me to something we hear all the time about fake news and real news. And to me, that's that's a little bit part of media literacy. How do you determine? I mean, you, you're talking about verifying uh, what's factual. You're talking about understanding where um, the identity of a source. But how do you, de- you know, how do you determine what's factual? Burl, how do you de- discern between fake and real? Well, as I talked about earlier, you, news organizations establish credibility over time. You have to come to trust, not that they don't make mistakes, but you come to trust the New York Times. You come to trust the Washington Post. You come to trust major news organizations that over the course of time have uh, maybe made mistakes, but uh, but they generally get the information as correct as it is possible to do it. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't mean there aren't new, nor, new organizations that can come along. Uh, you know, I worry as much uh, about uh, the ownership of organizations uh, because, uh, first of all, as I just mentioned, there's secret ownership now. Secondly, some of this ownership is in it for nothing but money. Uh, Gannett is now owned by an investment corporation. They've retained the name Gannett. Our local newspaper is is owned basically by people who are there just to reach a bottom line. And what we see, I haven't seen this with Gannett or the State Journal, but I've seen in other communities a perfectly good newspaper that suddenly is printing press releases without any sort of editor, without editing. They just put them in the paper as if they're news stories. Uh, you know, so you have to, I think, go with news organizations that are long established. Once upon a time, uh, when I was growing up, you had Walter Cronkite, uh, John (laughs) Chancellor, and uh, Peter Jennings, Huntley and Brinkley. The world came down, basically, America came down to three television networks, but they were founded on the backs of journalists like Edward R. Murrow, who risked their lives to, to get information for us. And I think people forget how how the backbone of journalism remains, the Times, the Post, uh, even the Wall Street Journal, whether you agree or disagree with its editorial page, they run an honest newsroom. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I I think that's that's very true. I, I read something today that, you know, 
and uh, so what I was going to say about lateral reading is, yeah, you can easily do that with publications too. You know, you don't, you're, you're not familiar with the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Telegraph or something like that. Um, and, and that happens a lot when, when we land on websites, because most of us are doing, you know, Google searches or things like that. And we land on a website like the Telegraph, and we're not sure what that publication is, you can easily Google that and find out, you know, a little bit more information about that. But um, going back to what you just said, too, was about, um, I, I think, some of these large news organizations like the Times and the Wall Street Journal and that, um, the, these are institutions that, you know, they're, they're paying fact checkers. <laughs> they have a, you know, they have a large commitment to, you know, getting, getting to the truth and honest journalism. Um, you know, they have clearly marked editorials and opinion pages. Uh, they have proofreaders and, you know, they're striving for that transparency. And, you know, I, the quote that I read today said that uh, good process and good reporting go a long way you know, to mitigate that maybe a personal bias that um, a reporter might have. But if you have a good process in place and you have a good, um, you know, those longstanding trustworthy sources, then it goes a long way, I think, in, in mitigating this idea of fake news and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Jaden, I'm so interested as a, as a budding journalist, um, how this sits with you. And if, if you've um, actually ever been in a situation where you've questioned the truth of a source and and how you handled that so i'm going to take it back to um high school actually so i was able to um my school offered a fantastic class it was centered around media literacy um so that's kind of where i started learning about that um my first thing that i learned about was looking at what is a neutral source and what is a source that is left or right right leaning um politically or just in any type of uh situation i think that was the first thing i wanted to go through um, when finding a good source and then carrying it over to college. Um, where I've learned good media literacy in college, but I think um, finding sources like they were referring to lateral, um, you want to be able to dig into the organization or to the person um, that is posting this information. I think when it becomes cloudy is where you want to kind of back out of it. I think social media is the main thing that we look into now that talks about fake news. Um, which is, it talks about fake news, and that's also where a lot of the fake news is coming from. Um, it's also hard for students now and younger people to discern what is fake news and what's not fake news. Um, I think you need to start, instead of clicking on a Facebook link or sharing the Facebook link, um, and I think it's great now, Instagram, I have not, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but they now have a fact-checking source on there. Um, they've been fact-checking information, which I think is great. And I think the place I noticed that the most is the uh, pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, is where we see a lot of fake news stuff going around. And I think that's where I learned about it the most on social media, um, is discerning between what's real about COVID-19 and what's not real about COVID-19. And I think having a fact checker, um, as she was referring to, is great for um, organizations because I think it's hard for a journalist to get all the information and know that's verifiable for them. It's you can do your best at it. Um, I surely do my best at it. And I know Burl does his best at that. But as, at sometimes you may not have a verify or a great verifiable source. So you want to figure out whether that's real or not real. Does the lookout have a fact checker? We don't. We have two editors, so that uh, those are our fact checkers, and I, mm -hmm. they do very good at that. Um, yeah. We are kind of our own personal fact checkers as well. Um, I haven't reported on anything too crazy so far <laughs> to where I've had to fact check a lot of stuff, 
Um, but you do want to make sure you got everything right before you put out bad information to people because you don't want to be labeled as um, a fake news source. Um, you want to build credibility, such as Bro was saying. You, as a news organization, you want to build that credibility so people can look into you um, and use you as a source at some point. You know, I use you know Washington Post or New York Times as a news source. Um, at some point, you want the paper that you're working for to be um, a verifiable news source for people as well. So that's great. Quick follow up: Have you experienced uh, learning media literacy in any of your other courses that aren't journalism? English, English class. Um, when you're writing, um, say something, something sort of um, history based in English class, you really want to make sure that information is correct. I mean, I know it's class and it's not going out to the public but you still want to make sure that information is correct. You can get doc points for that. Hmm. Um, and you also just want to learn good media literacy as well uh, because when you do out go out in the real world, um, whatever job you're in, you want to make sure you're reporting real information to people. So that's being taught when you're taking English or history. Yes, it's yes. kind of being folded in there. That's good. And I was going to ask you, Amy, too, if that's been your experience at LCC or if you are – helping and providing expertise to faculty? Uh, you know, we do, we'll provide information literacy instruction to really anybody at the college or the LCC community. Uh, mainly we work with a lot of classes, um, English classes in particular, uh, that are incorporating those sources, learning how to do research really. Um, and so, so we'll work with them. We also uh, have worked with, uh, one of our librarians just did a presentation for, uh, the business BCI, uh, business and community Institute. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so she just did a presentation to their staff about how to find information about business and businesses and things like that. So, uh, yeah, most definitely English classes are, are a good place to get your lessons on media literacy. So this is Barilla, slightly, it's not fully off topic of media literacy, but it's something that, that, that we corresponded just a little bit about in terms of, of how, as a publisher, uh, a publisher of the City Pulse, uh, whether it's truly alternative or it is our alternative choice in town, how do you decide what is news for a particular issue, given the wealth of goings-on uh, in all arenas in this you community. Know, we, of course, we're a newspaper. We want to be first. But there are two different ways to be first. One is to break the story, but the other is to do a better story. And we tend to not follow the pack. We'll sometimes do stories that have been covered because months later we're able to do it in more depth. But uh, we're trying to... Uh, put stories out there that uh, aren't available uh, or aren't available in depth in other local media. I wanted to say quickly about social media, be very careful on the local level because what you're often seeing is unedited material posted by a reporter who oh. is rushing to get home to get dinner or whatever. It, it, uh, you mean reporters who might post on their personal feeds, or who post will post to post a story on their uh, newspaper website? We don't do that. But if you look and you say newspaper television, uh, those are being written uh, and posted without uh, great care mm. uh, as far as fact checking. 
even though they are under the the you know moniker of that particular uh, news organization. Okay, that's good. Good point. Um, another quick question in another direction for you, Burl. Uh, as a employer, how has all this information and the need to you know, assess, the need to assess accuracy and verify facts has always existed. That's not new. It's the abundance and the variety of sources, and the that that's to me that's that's really changed. How, as an employer, does that impact what you look for in in um, a reporter? Well, uh, I'm I rarely hire. Uh, somebody right out of college who has not at least interned with me so that I can get a sense of, is that person careful? Uh, and, you know, ideally, I like to, at our level, hire somebody with a couple of years' experience uh, who has a, a track record. Uh, even then, we make mistakes. Sure. Uh, people fool you. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I don't worry about occasional errors. In fact, if you look at the New York Times every day, and I think page two, they'll run four or five corrections. Uh, journalists, you know, in dealing with so much information, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, what, I, what I worry about is the reporter who uh, is uh, constantly battling uh, getting things straight, who can't seem to uh, uh, get under the story. You can't can't understand the story, and, and if you can't understand it yourself, uh, the public's not going to understand it, and you're probably going to have incorrect information. That's a good point. Boy, the time has flown. We have <laughs> just a minute, maybe thirty seconds each, if you want to share a final thought before I wrap it up. Jaden, I think um, one thing I wanted to go off of Burl's point. Um, on the fast, quick reporting, I think that leaves a lot of pieces to be filled in. And I think um, for all other journalism students and people in journalism, I think that's something they need to look into as well, is maybe um, writing a good story rather than getting the first story out. Good point. Amy? Um, you know, I was just thinking of, of just a few tips to, to help detect bias, too, in, in a news story. Um, you know, when you see things, sort of buzzwords and a lot of jargon, um, almost even insulting kind of things, uh, really one-sided opinions, um, one, one way to think. And that's that's the only way that's being presented. I, I actually read an article in the, the City Pulse this morning, um, and it had to deal with um, some of our local candidates here uh, in, in Ingham County. And they spoke to the reporter spoke to uh, people that support a uh, few people that were in support of the, the one candidate. And then they spoke to a few other people that were in support of the other candidate. So that that balanced reporting, you didn't hear just all of one side. You you heard from both sides of the of the issue. So I think those are just some quick tips uh, when you're looking at a good news story. It Thank should you. really just be reporting um, on the facts of, of what happened, what what's taking place and, and give you that balanced perspective. Good point. Thank you, Amy. Appreciate that. Burl, 10 seconds. We worry too much about fake news on the national level. We don't worry enough about what's happening in our own community. There is not enough coverage. Uh, look how long it took to find out a wonderful story that 
LCC spending $600,000 to fix up a building. It was approved last June. We found out about it by word of mouth. Yeah, yeah, great point. Great conversation, everybody. Thank you so much, Burl Schwartz. My pleasure. Amy Ewald and Jaden Hewitt. Really appreciate you you taking the time to explore this subject today and and enlighten uh, us all. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to listen to other episodes of Galaxy Forum and all the LCC Connect programming. Visit lccconnect.org. Special thanks to our technical producer today, Lane Ingram, and to Andy Callis for composing our theme music. I'm Melissa Kaplan. And this is Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. Examining the issues and topics that affect our lives from the local level to the world stage. Listen to the programs of LCC Connect anytime at lccconnect.org. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College has been a proud collaborator of the Mason Promise Scholarship since 2016. The Mason Promise Scholarship is a community organization of volunteers that guarantees funding for two years of Lansing Community College education to selected Mason public school students. These selected students are chosen by the Mason Public Schools at the end of the fifth grade and then become a Mason Promise Scholarship through an induction ceremony. Over the course of the next six years, these students receive mentoring and support as well as introduction to career possibilities through the Pathway Program. For more information on the Mason Promise Scholarship at LCC, please visit lcc.edu slash hope. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination our honesty, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. October 17th through the 21st, Lansing Community College will be celebrating National Transfer Student Week. You can learn more about transferring options available to LCC students. LCC University Center partner universities and Michigan State University will be on the downtown campus in the Gannon Building. Representatives from each university will be available with information about transferring. Find more details by visiting lcc.edu uc. On the success scenario, we meet and hear from current LCC students who face adversity why they chose LCC, and how they turned their situation into a successful one. Definitely now after second semester, my self-confidence is up there. I can do this and I can do this well. Age has nothing to do with it. Like I told you before, I I have notes from that first meeting and it was take your age out of it. You deserve to be here. You belong here. I'm Dustin Abrego. 
The Success Scenario is a program dedicated to inspiring students towards a path of success. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime online at lccconnect.org. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Hey, hey, hey. This is Lisa A., and you're listening to Who's That Star on LCC Connect at Lansing Community College. Who's That Star is a behind-the-scenes show where I sit down and talk with the employees at the college. This is an inside look at LCC where you will have a chance to learn about their passions, projects, what inspires them both at work and in their personal lives. I'm your host, Lisa Alexander. I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to all the people who make LCC great. This show is for you to get to know the people that work at Lansing Community College a little bit more and see what makes them tick. Are you ready? Okay, let's go see who's today's star. Our guest today on Who's That Star grew up in Shepherd, Michigan. She earned a bachelor's degree in math at MSU moved to New York City right after graduating and getting married. She lived across the street from the Stock Exchange and attended graduate school at NYU. She tutored in Bushwick in Brooklyn, and after two semesters, she returned to Michigan. She worked at Auto Owners Insurance as a COBO programmer for a year and a half. She returned to New Jersey City, New Jersey, and she and her husband went back to graduate school at NYU. She got a job at James Madison High School in Brooklyn, where she had to do a two hour a day commute each way every day using three to four types of public transportation from Jersey City to Brighton Beach. I wouldn't have been there that long. This high school was very large with thousands of students. The school has many famous graduates, including Carol King and Chris Rock, to name a few. After earning their degrees, they moved back to Michigan. In 2004, this star became an adjunct in the math skills department. She taught for six years as an adjunct. She became full-time faculty member in the math department around 2010. She served as a member of the Mahi bargaining team for contract negotiations. She was asked to be the interim associate dean for science and math. Once the position was posted, she applied and was offered the regular position. In 2017, she was asked to be the interim dean of arts and science. She again applied for that and accepted the regular position of dean. She also returned to school to earn another master's degree in mathematics for U of M Flint while having a full-time job and raising two children. Are you ready to learn who today's star is? We're going to need the drum roll. Today's star is Andrea Hoagland. Welcome, Andrea. We're so glad to have you here on Who's That Star? Thanks for having me, Lisa. I'm really excited to do this. I'm excited, too, because I, I learned a lot about you you know, just reading your bio and, you know, stuff that I didn't know. So I want to ask you about it. So I'm ready to dive in. So our first question is, can you tell me about your work at LCC and like, what are your roles? So I started out as a faculty member and that's still a really important role to me being a teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though I don't get to go into the classroom, I still feel like a lot of the things that I learned about teaching 
um, help me every day in my work as an administrator. Right. You know, just understanding what has to happen in the classroom and also just in my interactions with students and faculty, you know, thinking like a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so right now I'm the Dean of Arts and Sciences. And so that, and that's a big job, isn't it? Yes. Because <laughs> you over, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you're over a lot of programs, aren't you? Yes. Um, off the top of my head, I don't even know the number, <laughs> um, the, but there are several of them. And some of them are very large programs right. and some of them are very small programs. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's a very large portion of the students at the college are uh, taking the courses in our programs, right. which is wonderful. Yeah, because you have a lot of the general education courses that students need to transfer or just meet the core. So yes. you get to touch a lot of students in your area. Yes, absolutely. And so I supervise um, all of the administrators that supervise the faculty in all of those programs. And then I also have a few other administrators and staff that help with, you know, all the work that the division does as a team. Does, do you decide the direction of the division or is that somebody above you? Like, do you make the decisions on like how we're going to proceed? So there's a little bit of both, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Cause I work with uh, several levels of teams, right? I have the executive leadership team that I work with and then that leads the whole college, okay. the college as a whole. Right? right. And then I also work with the provost cabinet team cause I report to the provost, mm -hmm. Sally Welch. And so I work you know, as a team with the other deans and we, you know, talk about the things that we're going to do the same and the things that we're going to do different. Um, and then at the division level, I also work with my leadership team of the division. Wow. Okay. Right. And so I lead them, but we really work as a team. You know, we talk about how we want to approach things as a team. What are the things that we need to do the same? What mm -hmm. are the things that it's okay if people do differently? And so we, we meet every week to talk about those things. That's interesting. I never really knew the hierarchy. Like I was like, well, who who tells the dean what to do? And so now I see like there are levels. Mm -hmm. And so you have to uh, decipher through all the different meetings and different requests on how to present that to your staff and get it implemented. Right. Yeah. And and it really f the information flows in both directions. It goes up and down because really a lot of times when I'm meeting with levels of the executive leadership team or the provost cabinet, I might be bringing information from the division level. Mm -hmm. Right. To give input into decisions. And then same thing when I meet with my division team, I'm telling them about what I've learned in the executive leadership team and in provost cabinet. Yeah, it seems like you're in a unique position because you were an instructor. So you know the trials and tribulations of an instructor, you know, adjunct and full time. But then as a administrator, you get to see like the behind the scenes stuff that sometimes that we don't always know. So how do you how do you navigate that? Like knowing that how as an instructor, but also now your new role, how that seems like that might be difficult. I, I think I try to use it to my advantage, yeah. you know, trying to know, um, a little bit in the weeds about what's happening, but also trying to keep the big picture in mind. And I feel like the, the fact that I know 
um, a lot about teaching and a lot about our systems really helps me when I'm working alongside my colleagues Mm -hmm. to support what they're trying to do, you know? So when they bring a problem to me and say, here's what I'm trying to address, um, I feel like my knowledge set of administrating and teaching really helps me when I'm trying to help people problem solve. That's good. Yeah, definitely. I think it would be difficult to not have that teaching experience and come in to be a dean. And that's just me. But it's like not really understanding some of the problems that the people that work under you would have. I think your experience is definitely great. I wanted to ask you about, you know, you're in the math field, right? And you chose everybody I know, not everybody, but a lot of people do not like math. What drew you to math? So, you know, when I went to uh, begin my undergrad at MSU, I was planning to be a veterinarian. Oh, okay. I had even worked in a vet's office when I was a high school student. And so I I got kind of uh, intimidated by the courses I would need to take and the time I would need to be in school, which is kind of ironic now because I was in school plenty along. <laughs> um and so I, I got kind of scared of it, and I and I thought, you know, maybe I don't know that that's what I want to do, and I'm just going to take some courses and see where it leads me. Mm-hmm. And um, I was also part of the Lyman Briggs College okay. at MSU, yeah. which is a residential science college. And so you get a lot of uh, really interesting experiences taking the their science courses in labs and things, and their writing courses are um, really helpful and help you explore the kinds of things you might want to do with your life. And so I found that the math courses were the courses that I was doing the best in. Wow. (laughs) And I was actually in this amazing program that I, I didn't even seek it out. They looked at students with certain scores. Mm -hmm. I think if you came from certain size of high school, um, or, either a small rural high school or an inner city high school, um, they looked at you to see, you know, um, if you had higher test scores, mm-hmm. but they see that the students who come from your high school aren't as successful as other students. Right. Um, so they would invite us to be part of this program, which was called Emerging Scholars. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was... Um, we met three times a week for two hours at a time and just did math problems, if wow. you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and you enjoyed it. <laughs> I did. And they were much, sometimes they were much more difficult math problems than what we were doing in our math courses. Okay. So this wasn't even our math course. This is challenging, just this fun. Was, yep. From three to five, three days a week, we, even though we were all in calculus, right. We'd come back and do math problems together. Yeah. See, that's a different (laughs) type of life. (laughs) I never, I was running for math. It made such a difference because I had a group of students who were in my math classes, you know? And so if somebody didn't come to class one day or something, or somebody was struggling, we all helped each other out. Yeah. I love that. I think that that's Working in a group can be so beneficial. It keeps you engaged, I think. And then the help, you know, a peer to peer help is 
is great. And so was were you the only lady, female? Nope. You know, it nope. was it, nope. was, a, it was a good mix of people. Um, really, it, it was a really good mixture of people that might not have sought each other out. Right. <laughs> you know, if we hadn't been put together. Exactly. Oh, that's cool. though. It, and they were a group that I worked with even once Emerging Scholars was done. You know, I kept in touch in courses with them, you know, and, uh, and then I started to realize that I was good at math and I was like, well, maybe this is what I should do. When you, when you found that out, did you have a career in mind that you were thinking you were going to do with the math? Uh, no, I just knew I wasn't going to be a teacher. (laughs) That's funny. Isn't it funny how you know what you're not going to do and then what you end up doing? (laughs) That's hilarious. Um, how do you find your passion and the advocacy playing a role in your position here at LCC? So I'm actually, so I'm very passionate about math, mm-hmm. very passionate about teaching, very passionate about helping people. You know, I think it's really important to me that um, our students have a good experience when they come to LCC and also the employees that work here have a good experience working here. Right. Um, I'm really passionate about that. I'm also very passionate about um, the lives of kids in the Lansing area. Mm-hmm. And I and I feel like the way that I can help the most is by helping their parents connect to, you know, careers and transfer opportunities. Yeah. Um, but I also like to help at my son's school and and just get involved in ways that I can um, to help kids. Now, do they have you uh, helping at your son's school with any tutoring or anything? No, or? we haven't. <laughs> I think, you know, right now it's hard to find the time other yeah. than, you know, maybe going for one day once in a while. But um, so I try to help out in other ways. I try to, you know, be the parent contact person when I can oh, or, okay. or, you know, things that I can mm-hmm. do in the evening. Now, are your children good at math? Yes. Okay. See, yeah, that's a that's pressure. But, you know, it's not as good. You got your mom have all these degrees in math, you should be able to get through math. I think I'm going to send Michaela. I didn't know. I should have sent Michaela over there a while ago. You know, it's it's funny because having the degrees in math doesn't mean my kids think I know what I'm talking about sometimes. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's interesting. I um, Are there any programs that you are proud of that happen through arts and science that you'd like to talk about? I mean, I'm really proud of what we're doing in a lot of our programs. You know, I'm really proud of all the things we're doing in math to support students. The, you know, I, a lot of them happened after I was a faculty and not while I was a faculty, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just the work we're doing with the co-recs and, and the refreshers and, um, you know, working with the learning commons and just, you know, our faculty work really hard. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. And there's so much that is required, you know, of faculty and you as a dean. It's just, uh, I think it's good work. I think that you wanting to serve the parents of the community to help the children is a good thing because if they have a living wage, that's definitely going to help them. So I I like that. Well, now I'm going to ask you, tell me some stuff about your personal life. Are you married? I know you are, but let's talk about your partner. Yeah. So I've been married for 22 years. Okay. (laughs) And um, so my husband is a software tester at TechSmith. 
Oh, okay. Which is a really amazing company in, uh, that now is located just outside of MSU's campus. They just oh. moved. And so he's been there for 14 years. And it's just, it's a really neat company. And I think, it, you know, I, I enjoy hearing about what he's doing at work and all the interesting technology they're making. I bet you guys have some good conversations yes. talking about, you know, the, the well, definitely like you're teaching, you know, math, well, other, along with other subjects, but how those subjects that students learn here, you know, how does it transfer over into the workplace, right? So you'll get to talk to your husband about, like, these are things that I'm seeing or just learning. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good conversation. What do you really like the most about your job? The interactions with people. Okay. You know, I in my bio, you mentioned that I spent a little time as a COBOL programmer. Yeah. And what is that? It's just a, a pr programming language. Oh, okay. it's a little bit dated at this point. Oh. <laughs> it was a little dated back when I learned it, but um, much more so now. Um, so as I was doing that as a programmer, I did fine. It, I wasn't very passionate about it. But I remember one time I had to do a presentation to show a group of people how I was doing something. Uh, and people were surprised that a programmer could get up and talk in front of a group and explain things. Oh, really? And I overheard one of them say to somebody else, well, she's supposed to be a teacher. Uh, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> and and that came up again, huh? Yeah, it, it always kept coming up. And then you eventually succumbed to it. Because <laughs> when you came here, you, were, you weren't teaching right at first in the I math was. lab? No, I you was. Were? Oh, yep. okay. Yep. Yeah, I, I worked in the math lab and I taught okay. classes as an adjunct. Okay, great. Yeah. So what are some of your hobbies that you like to do outside of work? So I love to read. Okay. And I really like to, I, I enjoy reading physical books and I also really like to listen to books. Oh, yeah. And so I'll take a lot of walks, especially very early in the morning, uh, and listen to books for exercise. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. I never thought It's of that. really nice because I look forward to getting up and, you know, hearing the next chapter of my book. And, and you got to do that with walking. Now, yeah. are you doing that on campus or around your neighborhood? I just do it around my neighborhood. Oh, okay. Yep. That's cool. I know winter's coming now, so yeah. that's going to have to... Oh, I bundle up. <laughs> cut down. So who do you admire most in the world? My mom. Oh, why is that? <laughs> you know, I've... I've so I've always admired her because of the way she treats people. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, you know, she's, she's a peacemaker in all situations, you know, with at work or with family, everybody, that's always her role. Oh. And I admire that. And she's just, she's very loving, but she's also very smart. Okay. Um, you know, she, she's very quick to say, well, this is, something is broken in the house. I'm going to get out the directions and see if I can just fix it myself. Oh yeah. She's a go getter. Huh? <laughs> yes. Hey, yes. that's a yeah. That's not me, but I think <laughs> I think that's a good thing to admire in someone. Um, where do you see yourself in five years? Well, I'll have a high school graduate by then. Yes. So who knows? <laughs> you know, I I imagine that I will still be the dean of arts and sciences. You know, so I, you're not looking to go anywhere. No. no okay. No, good. Nope. Good. I you know the one thing I would like to add if I had more time would be to teach some. 
Mm. you know, either here or somewhere else, just maybe a course once a year would be really nice to be in the classroom teaching. I think I'd really enjoy that. So I think that's what I hear most from administrators that left the classroom is that they miss the student interaction and having that opportunity. You still get to interact with, you know, your peers and the people that work for you, but just some of that genuine, like, conversation interaction that you get from students is definitely uh it's something that you would miss but what does your day look like as a dean like what are you doing like what does that look like so a lot of days it looks like a lot of meetings one after another Um, but if I do have a break I usually will check in with my staff and see how people are doing. Um, I do have a lot of one-on-ones with the other administrators. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, I'm usually checking in with each of them once a week as well. Trying to keep, make sure everything is going on the plan that you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Usually they come with a list of things and I come with a list (laughs) of things and we, and we talk about what we need to talk about. And, um, there's a lot of things I have to approve, uh, like tech requests and different things like that. And, um, when we're in late ad season, oh yeah, <laughs> that keeps me pretty busy. I bet. Although it's a little better now. Um, and you know, mostly just a lot of conversations with people, you know, cause a lot of meetings I'm, if I'm in it, it might be because I called the meeting. Mm-hmm. So I'm running the meeting. Right. Um, and we're starting to have a few of those in person, which is nice. Yes. Um, but still a lot of time on WebEx. Got you. How did you transition when we had the pandemic? How did that go for you? Like, what was that like for you to be the leader of the arts and science, you know, to I, get those classes online? Like, what was that like? That was, it was pretty incredible because, you know, when we had talked hypothetically before the pandemic ever was here, we had talked about in our emergency planning, we mm. were like, what would happen if right. we had to move everything online? And we got a lot of responses from across the team. That's impossible. Mm. And for certain courses and right. things. And I'm not saying it was perfect. No. But, but people did an incredible job. Yeah, they did. It was amazing. And, you know, we just spent all of our time talking. Mm-hmm. talking to faculty, talking to administrators, talking to students, just trying to make sure that everybody knew what was happening and trying to problem solve as we went. Like, you know, students don't have this. Can we mail it to them? Students need that. Instructor needs this. Can, what? How can we get it to them? Right. What does that look like with everybody remote? Um, so, so you a supply chain manager now too, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know how to get stuff to where it needs to be. Yeah. You know, making sure because in the, you know, in the past we had offered laptops and things like that to most of our adjuncts, but not all of them. And mm-hmm. we needed to make sure that everybody had a laptop if they needed one. And just a lot of th- cross the division things that we had to take care of. So it was it was a lot, and it we just spent a lot of time talking, you know, and planning. But it worked, you know. Yeah. That's the thing about it. It worked, and it was done well. And, I like, I'm proud of the whole college for that because mm-hmm. I was one of those people. 
it'll never work. We'll never be able to, you know, do yeah. that, but you can never say never. And I thought we did an excellent job. And I, I would say that our instructors and our administrators done a great job too. So I, I was, I was proud of that. And I just wondered how it felt for you to really have to lead that, yeah. you know, that March to get it going. And so communication was definitely big. And, and trying to make sure that we didn't miss out on the human interaction part mm-hmm. of our day, you know, so trying to take time in meetings to talk about other stuff for a minute. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it wasn't just constant meeting, meeting, meeting and no human, you know. Like. And I'm glad that you said that because I think that's in management or as an administrator, you always have to keep that human element in, you know what I mean? And everybody was going through, um, you know, it was just turbulence for everybody. Yeah. And so to be able to have a, a leader that realizes that is important. But I, I knew you were that kind of leader anyway. But I just I think you have to showcase yourself and uh, you do. You're you're a person that I didn't know that you had just kind of you were doing adjunct when I had started. Like I had mm. seen you, but you made like a really big rise quickly how did you and it seemed like you kind of got thrown into those things like were you nervous when they asked you to be interim yes. uh, for science and math and then to be the dean yes both times very nervous <laughs> <laughs> you know I think in both cases I, I needed a lot of reassurance of you know well here's your team and here's who you're going to work with and and, and it was like, okay, well, if I'm working with these people, then I'm going to be all right. Yeah. I'm going to try my best. <laughs> and I think to me, like interim gives you a time like, mm, you know, I'm going to do the best that I can. Yes. Not that you, you know, but, but then you got a chance to test it out. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is this really what I want to do? Do I really like that? Yeah. So I thought that was cool. And you've been successful and you've done a great job. So I wanted to ask you too especially since you went to both schools, are you Spartan or Wolverine? I don't, I, I think I'm both. I, well, you I'm, are, I'm, you attended both. I'm, sure. I'm laughing because I mean, when my coworkers start talking about sports, I'm, I'm like, well, I'm not even sure what sport we're talking about. And so I, yeah, <laughs> you know, so somebody will say they're talking about basketball or yeah. and I'm like oh thank you well see if you don't have to know the sport you just gotta identify the team and because I guess with Michigan State and Michigan play you just sitting there not saying too much I'm or you're not watching sports I'm not at watching all, sports at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything against sports right it's but just that's not just- that's not, not what, what you're I doing on your watching. time off, right? right. Yes, yes. <laughs> I definitely understand that. <laughs> well, Andrea, I'm I'm so glad to have you come on Who's That Star. I think that this was a great opportunity to people to get an idea, a glimpse of what the life is like of a dean. You know what I mean? And and what you do to help all the students. And I think that's great. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with? I just, I'm, I'm so, I'm grateful for the opportunity I have to do this job and to work with the people that I work with at LCC. Uh, Cause I, I do really enjoy it and especially the people. Yeah. And I think they like having you. I've heard de- definitely good things and my interactions with you have been 
great. You've been a good leader. You listen. And, you know, you try to help the students and the staff. So that's all we can really ask for somebody. You know what I mean? And you got this beautiful smile. And that's what I love seeing because you're always smiling and you're always positive. And so that's wonderful. And I thank you today for being on Who's That Star. Thank you, Lisa. All right, everybody. I will be back again soon. And you've been listening to Who's That Star. You've been listening to Who's That Star. I'm Lisa A. And you can listen to this episode of Who's That Star and other shows from LCC Connect anytime online at lccconnect.org. Thank you for listening. Catch me next time to find out who's that star. This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.